go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We've been spending a lot of time in chapter 9 and for good reason because it's really at the heart of the argument of the author of Hebrews. But we transition now to chapter 10, verses 1 to 4 will be our text for this evening. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 4. And this is God's word. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they have not ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before your throne and through the merits of Christ alone. And we're, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Our desire is to see you rightly so as to apply the word faithfully in our lives. And so Holy Spirit, convict us and illuminate us and re reveal Christ to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, it is uh, in the first nine chapters of Hebrews, we have learned much together. And perhaps after every sermon in Hebrews, uh, you heard from Pastor Minjay or myself, you might have had the effect of a hammer pounding the same message over and over in our heads, the surpassing glory and the supremacy of Christ Jesus in the whole universe as the great anchor of our lives. Now Hebrews displays the greatness of Jesus Christ and the author goes to great lengths to point out the superiority of Jesus Christ our Lord. From the very beginning of chapter 1, he argued that the Son is superior to the angels. But for a time he came to a position lower than the angels in order to identify himself with human flesh and suffer on our behalf. In chapter 3, the author points out that Jesus is superior to Moses who was faithful in all of his house, but Jesus is more glorious than Moses because he is the one who has built the house. And then starting in chapter 5, we get into the author's central argument that Christ's appointment by God as a high priest is vastly superior to the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant. And as a Levitical priest, he also presents to God a superior offering, an offering that relates to a better covenant. That is offered once for all. Now these great themes. The Son as exalted above the angels. The incarnate one who identifies himself with humanity. The great appointed high priest. And the offering of a superior sacrifice. They all find their theological crescendo. Their climax in chapter 10. The author is summing up his theological arguments. With inescapable conclusion. That drives home the point. That our Lord Jesus is simply the greatest. Now starting in chapter 9, what has been the dominant theme is that Christ's once for all sacrifice is better than the sacrifices of the old covenant. And so important was the writer's purpose in highlighting the difference between the annual sacrifice of the Levit Levitical priests in the Old Testament and the one sacrifice of Christ that an entire section is devoted to it in chapter 10, particularly the first 10 verses. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, chapter 10 sounds a lot like what we've already heard. And you're right. 
chapter 10 is really a reiteration of what was said. He does not, the author does not move the argument forward at all. But he is reinforcing what has been said, the imperfection of the old and the perfection of the new. Now, you need to realize just how revolutionary of an idea this was to the original audience who were used to going to the temple their whole lives and offering sacrifices. For the writer to say that Christ once for all sacrifice was sufficient was to say that no more sacrifices were necessary. Well, that was a revolutionary thought to them. And, re, and in reinforcing what has been said, the writer, however, will come at it in a new angle using Psalm 40. He will demonstrate, as we'll look at the next time we look at Hebrews, that what God has been after was never sacrifices to begin with. God never delights in sacrifices, but an obedient heart who does the will of God. Now, ultimately, what the writer is doing as he's closing his arguments of Christ's superior priesthood and offering, building up one by one, is what he's doing. He's, he's doing it until he's able to fire off that great, important word. Therefore, in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over to the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. There is a clear shift from exposition to exhortation when we get to verse 19. And the power of that exhortation can only land on us effectively when we trace the argument that is building up to that point. And so before we get ahead of ourselves and get to the practicals, we must thoroughly be convinced of Christ's sufficient sacrifice. The author does not want any stone unturned when it comes to his once-for-all sacrifice. And in the first four verses of chapter 10, the author builds on a point that he has made earlier, that the annual repetition of sacrifices in the old order cannot remove guilt and sin. Now, while we may be thousands of years removed from the sacrificial system, the same question that haunted the Old Testament people confronts us today. What do you do with your guilt? The question is not about someone's feelings of guilt, whether they have guilty feelings. Now, while closely related, what do you do with your guilt is more objective. And it points to the universal condition of mankind. You see, there are people who are guilty without feeling guilty. That is what a sociopath is. They commit heinous crimes with no apparent feelings of remorse. That is not at all what we're talking about here. Whether you feel guilty or not is not the real issue. The issue is the universal indictment upon the fallen human race where everyone is objectively guilty for breaking God's law. Now we know from the study of psychology that there's probably nothing more paralyzing to human action than unresolved guilt. Such guilt and feelings of guilt paralyze people. That's why when we are confronted with guilt and the feelings that are attached to being guilty, we need to deal with them somehow. Now, unfortunately, all of the man-made methods of dealing with our guilt falls woefully short of removing the guilt altogether. Now, beloved, you know what it is to have a guilty conscience, don't you? You know what it is to hope with crossed fingers that your husband, your wife, your parents 
or friends will not find out that you have wronged or disobeyed them in some way. And you know what it means to try to live with that. You know what it means to try to erase uh, the guilt of your past by trying to suppress it. Going to a therapist, perhaps, to ease your conscience or to ramp up your religious observances. But for all of your efforts, you can never, ever shake the, loose the haunting cries of a guilty conscience. How do you silence those haunting cries? What do you do with your guilt? Well, we'll discover the answer to that question in our text by considering its counterpart. I, I, I want us in our text to look at four inadequacies of the old sacrificial system so that we may see more clearly that only by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus can our guilt be completely removed. Well, here's the first. Uh, the old sacrificial system was inadequate because of its character. <coughs> Excuse me, for its character. I want you to notice the first word, for, in verse 1. It's making the connection, carrying on from verse 26 of chapter 9, where he says, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For, to further explain this, the writer says, for the law, that is the law, that is as it relates to the Mosaic sacrificial system, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, Make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the old sacrificial system presents with us an inefficacious system of salvation. It could never perfect those who draw near. Now the author points out that the law in and of itself was incomplete. It was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of of things. Now, he's already told us back in chapter 8, verse 5, that the tabernacle and the priesthood were only shadows of the heavenly reality. Well, now he turns around and he says that the law and the priesthood, the entire sacrificial system, is only a shadow of the good things to come. Now, when he says that the law was a shadow, he's saying that the law in and of itself was incomplete. The law prefigured something but it wasn't the something. That's the emphasis the author wants to make in the character of the old sacrificial system, that there is a remarkable difference between shadow from the reality. Now, allow, allow me to borrow an illustration that I took from a commentary. I will adapt it to my own. By this picture I used to carry of Angela in the dashboard of my 1995 Civic while I was dating her. It was a small polar picture of Angela, and she was posing in those popular ways ladies pose for pictures. You know, the hell til tilted in a certain way. Picture perfect smile. You know what I'm talking about. But to me, it was a picture of the woman that I love. That there was no other woman but her. And that Polaroid picture of Angela that sat on my dashboard, it became my array of hope. That one day, she would be my beloved wife. And through some of the hardships that we had of our dating period, wonder, wondering whether it would work out or not, or waiting for the timing of getting married, that picture sat there and reminded me as I cruised the freeways of Los Angeles and the streets of Orange County of what reality could be of being together in marriage. 
And when the day finally came, when we stood before God and our families and friends and pledged our love to one another in the covenant marriage, we finally became one flesh. Suddenly, I went from having a one-dimensional portrait to the possession of the real thing who laughed and smiled and talked, a real three-dimensional wife, a living soul, someone that can say, like Adam, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But what about the picture? Well, the picture remained beautiful, but it went from the dashboard of my car to a shoebox in my closet. Now imagine that one day I decide in front of my wife to hold that portrait and say to her, and say to this portrait, my, my beautiful wife, I've missed this picture. I, I'm going to go back to it. I forgot how much I'm attracted to the silhouette and the monochromatic shading. I, I love how one-dimensional you look in this picture. And then I passionately kiss the picture, put it in my face and in my heart, and I hold it onto it wherever I go, and I put, pull the picture out throughout the day and say, oh, photograph of my wife, I love you. You're everything to me. What would you think if I were to do that? Well, your suspicions that pastors are weird will be confirmed, for one. But secondly, you will be able to see how absurd and how inadequate it would be to go back to the picture and love it, for it is not my wife. It is only a picture of her. I may be able to look at it, but I cannot have a conversation with it. I cannot laugh together with it. I cannot persuade it to cook any meals, my favorite meals. It is an accurate presentation of the real thing, but it's also a far cry from it. So the argument goes, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. The law was like a divine finger that was pointing to something and someone else. And the Jews, you see, they were enamored with the finger. Now remember the context of the audience, of the writer. They were tempted to turn back from Christ to their old way of Judaism. Now you know what happens when you go to a two-year-old and try to show something to them by your finger, right? You point to a two-year-old and you say, look. You know what they're looking at, right? Your finger. That's right. The writer is saying, don't stare at the finger. Look at what the finger is pointing to. The good things to come. And what are the good things to come? What is the shadow pointing to? Oh, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the benefits that comes from Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.17, he says much the same thing about the law itself when it states that it is a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In Christ, then, we have the good things to come. In Christ, we have the reality. Now, let me give you a quick word of application to us. Now, nothing is good, and nothing is useful to the church, but through its relation to Jesus Christ. That is, if anything is done in the church that does not point to Christ or finds its substance in Christ, then it is worthless and foolish. All the use and worth of the Old Testament system lay in this, that they were shadows pointing to Christ. All the usefulness of the Old Testament law is that it pointed a divine finger to the sin bearer, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now this is where churches get in trouble. And this is where I believe believers 
find themselves struggling in the faith. They drift away from Christ. They drift away from the reality of the good things that we have inherited in the Gospels. Now believers either forget what they possess in Christ or they become distracted by the things that draw their attention away from Christ. And they, they can't quite seem to figure out why they're struggling, why they're depressed, why they're overly anxious. And that is because Christ, the Christian, departs from the substance the good things that are in Christ. You see, the modern man and the modern woman starts and finishes with man's needs and man's ideas. We exalt the wisdom of man, man's advanced wisdom and psychology and therapy. We exalt philosophy and pragmatism of human thinking. What man thinks and what man says, that has been the approach. And it is not surprising that we, then as Christians, are in utter confusion so there is only one thing for us to do we must come back to the reality what all the shadows pointed to brothers and sisters you must recover in your heart and your mind that christ is the reality that the law points to he is the reality of all the good things and it's only by abiding in him meditating upon his glorious character that you can stand victorious in this life so central is Christ and the gospel to the Apostle Paul that he resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That must be the resolution of our hearts. Now the writer is going to prove the inadequacy of the old sacrificial system. I want you to look at the second part of verse 1 to the end of verse 2. He says, Can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Now, here in these verses, we note the second inadequacy of the old sacrificial system. And it's the fact that it demanded repetition. Now, follow the argument of the writer, beginning in the middle of verse 1. Following the thought of the law, the sacrificial system, he says, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The law could not perfect the worshipers. Now, how many times has the writer said that the law could not perfect the worshiper? Once you look back with me in chapter 7, verse 11, it says there now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Now, he repeats himself again. Go to chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Then in chapter 9, speaking of the conscience in verse 9 of chapter 9, the writer says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You see, the law could not bring about the goal of God's covenant. The law could not bring about the goal of the covenant. Now, the perfection that the author has in mind does not involve lack of flaws, but rather a state of a right relationship with God in which the worshipers are cleansed and once for all and delivered from a nagging sense of guilt. Now, under those Old Testament stipulations, 
the goal to bring forgiveness of sins and access to God, the law could never attain that goal. And that was all by design. The writer now argues this proof from repetition. He says these sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, can never make them clean. Now, when the author says they offer continually, his usage of the present tense actually argues that the temple, with its priestly system, was still operating. Now, on a side note, that means that the author must have written this before Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70. The context of the audience living in the time knew that the sacrificial system was still in operation. And these yearly sacrifices pointed to the Day of Atonement. So year by year, the basic purposes of sacrifices were not accomplished by the endless, repetitive nature of animal sacrifices. I like how Philip Hughes in his excellent commentary puts it, that repetition conflicts with finality. Repetition conflicts with finality. The inability to affect perfection to cleanse the conscience perfectly is pressed home by the logic of the question in verse 2. Otherwise, would, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had the consciousness of sin. If the worshiper, the priest, or people would have actually cleansed sin, they would never or no longer have had the consciousness of sin. In other words, if the law would have actually perfected the worshiper, they would no longer feel guilt of their sins. But every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the most holy place by the blood of a slain animal. But the high priest could never say to the worshipers, this blood has removed your sins once for all, and therefore this sacrifice has been the last. He could never say that. Because the high priest knew that he had to do this all over again the next year proving that the guilt of sin cannot be permanently removed. This repetition, you see, argues their inadequacy to take away the consciousness of sin. But the repetition does serve a certain purpose. And the purpose was simply a reminder of sins. And here we move to the third reason why the old sacrificial system was inadequate. Because it constantly reminded the worshipers of guilt. Look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, the writer argues, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Every offering had this purpose. You see, the worshiper offered their sacrifice to the priest to shed its blood. And when that blood was shed, no man could see that innocent lamb bleed without seeing and acknowledging the seriousness of their sin. As a matter of fact, the Day of Atonement increased the burden of those sensitive hearts. The Day of Atonement's well-defined ritual was constructed, you see, to aggravate one's conscience. Now, if there had never been an annual expiation, no annual Day of Atonement, the people would have tempted to think that every offering which they presented to God actually took away their sin. And so to guard against this fatal error, a day was appointed annually for a more striking remembrance of their sins. And the Day of Atonement brought about their sinfulness and the need for forgiveness on a national scale. And this Day of Atonement was well designed 
And it was well calculated by our Lord to produce in them the deepest humiliations. Their hearts would have been burdened and smitten by the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement must have given his readers pause for sober re reflection. What do you do with your guilt? How can my guilt be removed? How can I silence my guilty conscience? And instead of soothing the conscience, you see, the old sacrificial system stabbed the conscience, awakening each year when the high priest confessed their sins. Now, in the process of studying this verse, particularly on that word reminder, there was one Bible dictionary that I came across that noted that this word reminder suggests more than a mere memory of having done wrong. It involves an awakening of mind, the consciousness of guilt in the sight of God, and the consequent realization and seeking draw near to God of a hindrance to the unclouded enjoyment of His presence. Communion with God is impossible where guilt is upon the conscience. Now, this is an important definition because I believe the author is not only demonstrating that the yearly sacrifices reminded the people of their own sinfulness, but it also reminded them that they cannot come near to God, that there was yet a barrier to God, and moreover reminded them the great danger that their sin results in. I mean, think of it. The ongoing sacrifices dramatize the peril of judgment from the guilt of sin. And every lamb and goat was slain, it com communicated, this is what will happen to you unless a better atonement can be found. And I believe more terrifying than the yearly sacrifices of reminding people of their own sinfulness is a reminder to them that God remembers their sin. What wonder of grace then is there in the new covenant to reverse the pattern so that today, as the writer will later say in verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That is the glorious truth of the gospel, is that God remembers our sins no more. Now that the old sacrificial system's purpose was a reminder of sins, raises a couple of questions. Number one, what then was the reason for the whole sacrificial system in connection with the Mosaic law, right? Why was it there to begin it? Was it not a great illusion? Did it not arouse false hopes for Israel? What was the value of the law and the effect it has in humiliating and wounding and crushing and aggravating the conscience? Oh, the value was, was so that grace can come in. You see, the sacrificial system was a, preparation for grace by its nature it was preparatory demonstrating the seriousness of sin the reality of the righteousness of god and the necessity for atonement for this reason israel longed for an unblemished lamb who would take away sins once for all the one whom god would finally be able to say when i see the blood i will remember their sins no more it was preparatory for that reason but number two what role does remembrance play in the life of the Christian today? Now, the word reminder is a good one for the Christian today. Rem reminders and remembrance is a key to the Christian life. And it's something that the Christians cannot do without. Now, in our present era, 
while the message of the cross certainly reminds us of our sinfulness, we remember the remedy which God has provided in Christ. Now, it's, an interest, it's very interesting that the word reminder here in verse 3 is the same Greek word that is used in the institution of the Lord's Supper where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. While we are instructed to examine ourselves and confess our sins before partaking of the elements, the gospel transforms from one of guilt to one of grace. And so we remember not the sins and the burden of our guilt, but we remember the lavish grace of God. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the penalty we deserve for our sins, that it was completely placed on Jesus Christ, that His death accomplished what the blood of animal sacrifices could never accomplish. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do not come to the altar as if to sacrifice the Lord again. Rather, we remember His once-for-all sacrifice by coming to the table of the Lord. Jesus gave Himself in our place that He exchanged His life for our death. And this staggering infinite grace symbolized in the Lord's Supper was all designed to keep this glorious fact before our eyes to never forget it. Now, if you're new to Pillar or you've been coming here for a few months now, or even if you've been with us several years, you may have wondered, why does every sermon include the gospel? Isn't it so repetitive people may have looked at the lord's supper the same way and while we don't celebrate the lord's supper every week we do it every almost every month together we may be tempted to ask isn't it so repetitive well it is because we are such forgetful people it is unthinkable that christians would forget christ's sacrifice it appears almost impossible For those who have been redeemed by the blood of the dying Lamb, love with an everlasting love should forget so gracious of a Savior. I mean, it seems unimaginable to forget Him who never forgot us. Can it be possible, beloved? It is not only possible for us, but it happens every day to us. Do you find yourselves forgetful of Jesus? Forgetful of His precious blood? Forgetful that he took your place of judgment. Does the affairs of this world, your job, your career, your earthly ambitions steal your hearts away so that you are forgetful of Christ? Does the constant attraction of earthly things, the busyness of your life, distract your heart away from your Savior? You see, God knows very well the forgetfulness of our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah asked, can a maid forget her ornaments? Or a bride, her attire. Have you ever seen a bride who hasn't constantly fixed her mind on her wedding dress? The wedding is some six, six months away. Yes, she's thinking about the dress that she is going to wear at the wedding. But Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. A bride can look forward to the wearing of the wedding dress and can never forget it. But the Lord says, but my people have forgotten me days without number. And so weekly, the preaching of the gospel, monthly, the Lord's Supper is for our benefit. It is to recall in our memory of what is most important in the world. The gospel of grace, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Weekly, we are called to recall the sinfulness of sin. 
while at the same time remembering that God has cleansed us and redeemed us in Jesus Christ. Now, fourth and final reason why the old sacrificial system was inadequate was because of the imperfection of the blood of animal sacrifices. Now, if the author could have used bold font, chapter 10, verse 4, probably would have been all bolded. It represents the clear and concise explanation for what was said in verse 1, that the sacrifices can never make the worshipers perfect, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, in order to fully appreciate the impossibility of bulls and goats to remove sin, it would be profitable for us to follow the trail of Scripture of that word blood. What you discover as you read your Bible is that the shedding of blood or the implications of it are on practically every page. If the history of redemption is a story that is told in pictures, the blood would surely be the paint with which that story is portrayed. Now we have no record of the shedding of blood, no mention of death before Adam and Eve sinned. But when they committed the cosmic, the most greatest of all treasons, they brought not just sin upon the human race, but also death. The shedding of blood. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Adam and Eve to watch God kill that first animal upon their rebellion of his command? What ran through their minds as they watched the blood flow from its innocent victim? Disturbed? Distressed? Traumatized? Certainly all of the above. Adam and Eve had never ever seen anything like this before. This blood was different than what they've seen before. And in Genesis 3.21, the Bible says that God, moved by mercy and compassion, made garments of animal skins for Adam and Eve. The implication is that God sacrificed an animal to clothe the man and his wife. Perhaps he even killed that animal before their eyes to demonstrate to them the awful cost of their sin. Now, the death of the animals was bad enough for Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God, but how much more horrifying was it the next time they witnessed the shedding of blood. Right in their homes, in their own family, the shedding of blood came right at their doorstep. There was Abel lying in the ground, in the pool of his own blood. And God came to Cain and he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see, Abel's blood speaks Later on in Hebrews 12, 24, we read that the blood of Abel speaks. It communicates something. It cried out for the wrong to be righted. Cain was guilty of the sin of murder. And the blood of Abel stood against him, a stain that Cain could not remove. And when we get to Exodus, we see that in the Old Testament, no event is so dramatic and earth-shattering as Israel's redemption from Egypt. And at the heart of Israel's redemption, blood was at its center. God swore to kill the firstborn of every creature in Egypt, including the house of Pharaoh. And to avert the judgment of God, God commanded every household of Israel to select a male lamb without blemish, to kill it, and then to smear the blood on the doorposts of the house. Then God said, the blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall, befall you or destroy you. When I strike the lamb of Egypt, the blood that was smeared on the doorpost was to symbolize 
the satisfaction that blood had on God's justice. And when the covenant was established with the people of Israel, sacrificial blood was at the heart of their relationship. Daily, monthly, yearly, sacrifice after sacrifice. In fact, more than 300,000 lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem on Passover to the, pl- to the point that blood streamed down the streams into a Kidron Valley. The outer court of the tabernacle was always drenched with blood. The white garments of the priests were spattered in crimson red. Blood runs throughout the Bible. And the inevitable question is, why so much blood? It is because there is so much sin in the world. The shedding of blood is the result of sin. You see, in Genesis 9-4, we are told that life is in the blood. And if life is in the blood, and the blood represents life, then the shedding of the blood represents death. And so every animal sacrifice told the same story. That a life is required to be laid down. That every dying animal meant a life is brought to an end. It communicated that sin was serious. That it forfeited life. That unless this sin could be actually removed, the sinner must die. And so the blood of animals was shed for a sinner. A substitutionary death in place of a sinner was required. And although rivers of such blood would continually be flowing, your common sense told you what efficacy could there be in them to put away the moral stain of guilt and transgression before God. No animals could be an adequate substitute for a human being. And so God sent the perfect human being, His only Son, to be the only adequate substitute for man's sin. Now this is going to be the author's argument in the next section of Hebrews when he quotes Psalm 40. But beloved, if you are in Christ, you live because of the blood of the Lamb of God. In the blood of Jesus Christ, we have what we have lost in Adam, namely life. Now, you know, there are a number of people in our congregation right now whose mom or dad or grandparents have to go to the hospital clinic or clinic for treatments. When I used to take my mom to her chemotherapy sessions, there's a very interesting thing that I observed. The treatments are designed to make you better. Whether it's chemotherapy or radiation, whatever it is, you go to this place repeatedly for the treatment that is supposed to be healing. But the one thing that is striking about the repetitive nature of the treatments is not that it's a reminder that you're getting better. It's a reminder that you're sick. But what if the doctor came, was able to come to the sick, in the waiting room, sat down next to you, and he was able to say, listen, I I have some really good news for you. We have a treatment. We have the remedy. And you only need to take it once, and you'll be completely healed and thoroughly healed. The proof that the treatment was really effective, that it really worked, was if you never had to come back. Under the old covenant, sacrifices was made. Atonement was made, but, un- but then they had to come back next year and the year after that. And this was not a reminder of forgiveness of sins. It was a reminder that they had sinned. And the only thing that could have genuinely 
communicated that your sins are completely forgiven is you don't need to come back next year. The power of Jesus' sacrifice is this. It never needs to be repeated. What has taken place once for all time, never to be repeated. And so Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, truly put away sins once and for all. Friends, if, you, if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I have devastating news for you. You are diagnosed as having a fatal disease of a guilty sinner. And it is appointed for men for you to die once. But after this comes judgment. It is a fatal disease. But the glorious news of the gospel is this. That there is a once for all remedy. And you never have to come back to the clinic again. You can look upon the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood poured out, and know that your sins have been completely removed. No more stain of sin. No more condemnation. No more guilt. So trust in Christ tonight, and you will be healed and cleansed. Let's pray together. Lord, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, praise be to you, merciful Father, for cleansing us, for removing the guilt of sin completely by shedding the blood of your own Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to never be forgetful of these things and forget the grace of God, for to do so is to experience the greatest misery on earth. Enable us to contemplate on the gospel over and over again so that we will not only possess Christ and experience his goodness in our hearts, but more ultimately that our lips and our lives would praise you all the day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.